many, many years ago, in the days of VHS. Who remembers VHS? Okay, who's... My dad thought he was an early adopter. So he didn't go for VHS, he went for Betamax. Who else did that stupid thing? <laughs> so, um, but anyway, I came home from a meeting um, in the evening, and Anna was watching um, a videotape, uh, VHS, and she just started to watch the BBC's adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. Some of you might remember that. It was six, one hour episodes and obviously back in those days you had to tape it and we found out someone that we knew who had recorded it and so Anna then took these videotapes uh, from them and started to watch it anyway it was the one with Colin Firth and Amelia Fox was in it as well and others and some of you think when I say Colin Firth some of you are thinking oh Ruth your face um yeah. <laughs> Because uh, you think when he, kind of, when he kind of comes out in his white shirt. Yeah, Shirley, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> um, anyway, um, uh, Anna kind of groaned, because I think she assumed that, that Pride and Prejudice was the last thing I wanted to watch with her. And I said, oh, can we switch it over? Because back in those days, you just had one telly, and that was it, four channels, that was your lot. Um, and uh, I then sat down with her, much to her dismay, and I... I said, oh, I'll, I'll watch this with you. And I started to do that really annoying thing of asking questions about what had gone on. Has anyone had that experience as well? Who's that? What are they doing? Anyway, I managed to piece it all together, and I worked out who was who, and, and I kind of got into this. And we watched one episode, and then we said, oh, let's watch another. And before we knew it, and this was a school night, we'd watched the whole lot. And we went to bed, which if you know anything about uh, me and Anna, we went to bed at two in the morning. And I think that this was the beginning of my addiction. I'm amongst friends, aren't I? Of my addiction um, to, to binge watching box sets. I think it all started with Pride and Prejudice. Stranger Things, who's been watching that? It's good, isn't it? Finished. We've got to wait till July for the next thing. Anyway, so let's get back to this. Um, but, but Pride and Prejudice is a story that kind of gripped us. I think when Kira Knightley did it in that film, wrecked it for me. Um, but, but it's a story all about class and family. It's about issues of morality. It's about wealth and poverty. It's about hope and despair. Uh, most importantly, Pride and Prejudice was about love, romance, and marriage. And I enjoyed it that much. I've watched it several times, which is unlike me when it comes to TV programs. Uh, I have to say, though, that even though it's one of the most loved books in, the, in English literature, I've never actually read it. I've just watched the film. Who's read it? Okay. Who's watched it? Oh, you see more. There you go. So basically, why do I tell you about that? Um, uh, basically, it's a great story. It's a great story that captures our imagination, and I think a, a good story can inspire us, it can teach us, it can make us cry, it can make us laugh. And I think in the case of biblical stories, a biblical story can also reveal to us more about the character and the nature and the action of God in our lives and in our world. And over the next month, I think it is, we're going to be looking at this biblical story uh, from the Old Testament called Ruth. Very short, the readings are quite long, but four chapters. 
And, and the book of Ruth was written thousands of years ago. We don't know exactly who wrote it. Um, and uh, you might question the fact it was written all those years ago. Has it got anything to say to us in the here and now, in 21st century Western culture? But surprisingly, I think it does. Because it's a story about the lives of very ordinary people. People who, on the one hand, they encounter life's tragic blows, such as poverty and grief and loneliness and exile, and, and then within the, in the midst of all of that, death. But also those who encounter generosity and goodness and kindness and commitment and love. It's a story of great contrast about the stuff of life. It's about despair and hope and joy and sadness. And, and I think that because of that, it's a story that we can all relate to. Because never, none of us kind of live a life that is just kind of like a plateau, is it? You know, life for many of us, I would say all of us, is up and down. And even in one day, I can face great joy and blessing and equally despair and disappointment. And I think that what we find, though, in this story is something that can relate to us, whoever we are. Now, within this story, there are a number of characters. We find Naomi. Uh, we find Ruth, who it's named after. We find Orpah. Now, here's an interesting little fact. Some of you might have heard of someone called Oprah. Anyone? Well, apparently, apparently, and I, I read this in the Daily Mail, um, so it must be true. Uh, she was, apparently she was named Orpah, but her family struggled to say that, and so they called her Oprah. <laughs> uh, but, but one character who is key is actually God, the God of Israel. Yet throughout the story, he remains in many ways quite hidden. Um, unlike other biblical stories that you might read about people like Moses and Abraham and Joshua and Gideon and, and then obviously Jesus and Paul and Peter, you know, there seems to be an absence of God's audible voice. There's an absence of visions and miracles in the experiences of the characters in the life uh, in this story of Ruth. God seems to be quite hidden. But I think what we do know as you work your way through it is he, he is there. And he is involved in the ordinary affairs of life. You know, what at times seems to appear to be maybe just chance or luck, or it just so happens, I think if you press it, we actually discover that it's God's response to the everyday faithfulness of his people. God is bringing about his plans and his purposes through this story. Though in not very obvious ways, but he is, the activity of God is going on behind the scenes. And that's what we call divine providence, God's activity in the world and in our own lives. You know, divine providence is about God having a knowledge of the future and then taking action in the present in situations and in people's lives to bring about his own plans and purposes. And I think that many of us, if we kind of look back over our lives, we could probably point to the providence of God at work in our lives. You know, things that have happened, people that we have met. You know, it could be luck, it could be chance, it could just so have happened in that way. But actually, I think if we press it, 
and look at it with the eyes of faith. Actually, it's God at work behind the scenes of our lives, seeking to bring about his plans and his purposes. And I know for myself, as I look back over my life, you know, various things have taken place. And, and as you look back, you don't always see it at the time, but God has been at work. And I think in Ruth, there is the hiddenness of God, but equally, we find divine providence, God working his purposes out through the ordinary, everyday faithfulness of his people. And I think what is true for the, the characters of Ruth and Naomi and, and others, it, you know, that God was at work then, that God is at work within our lives as well. If only we would look. So let's take a look at the text. Uh, I'm going to do a verse by verse expository sermon, so we could be here for some time. Um, what do we find? Well, the context sets it out there. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, if you know anything about the judges, it was a very dark time. It was quite chaotic and violent for the people of Israel. Um, if you go back a bit, Moses' successor, Joshua, had died, and various leaders then kind of uh, rose up in order to take charge and to lead what were quite a disparate people. Uh, a key verse in Judges is 21:25, where it says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So in other words, they, they lived life without reference to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And because of that, it was chaotic and dark. There was a great unrest in society. And then what happened, if you look through in verse 1 again, it says there was a famine in the land. So the situation had gone from bad to worse. And I think as we look around our world at this time, there seems to be that kind of context going on where people say things just seem to be getting worse. You know, COVID, that was enough. And now war in the Ukraine and now potentially a global recession. I don't know, but it sounds like it could be. You know, people think, oh gosh, it just seems to get worse and worse. That seems to be the situation here when it comes to the book of Ruth. And, and it's at this point with any uh, in introduced as some of the key characters in the story. The first one is Naomi. Naomi, uh, her name means pleasant and lovely. Anyone here called Naomi? No? Oh, yeah. oh. well, there you go. You're lovely and pleasant. It's lovely to have you with us. Thank you. Um, are you Naomi or Naomi? You don't know. Okay, answer to either. Okay, that's fine. Um, anyway, moving on from that. I'm come, sorry, can I just say that I'm, I'm really not on my game this morning. I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this. Okay, Naomi, which doesn't really give you any confidence at all. But Naomi was married to this chap called Elimelech. They have two sons, Marlon and Kilion. They probably have a farm, a kind of a small holding. And even though it's a, a dark time in the wider society, I would imagine that for Naomi, she has all that she could wish for. She has a husband who loves her, who cares for her. She has two sons she's provided for. But then the famine comes and changes everything. Was it God's judgment on his rebellious people? Well, we just don't know. It's just one of those things in life. And, and let me tell you this, you probably already know it. Bad stuff happens to good people, and there is no rhyme or reason why at times. And that's what we find here. And so Elimelech, who holds the family together, has a choice. So they stay and struggle along with everyone else because famine affects everyone, 
or do they move? Now, the place that they find themselves in, Bethlehem, actually means house of bread. There's a kind of an irony in that. But basically what happens is that that, uh, Elimelech and Naomi and Kilion and Marlon, they decide to leave Bethlehem and go to a place called Moab and live there. Now, the mountains of Moab can be seen on a clear day from Bethlehem. Rather like we can see Jersey on a good day from somewhere like Zherberg, you could see Moab from Bethlehem. And there's not a lot of love lost between Moab and Israel. Rather like Guernsey and Jersey, but I think it was a whole lot worse to the point where maybe they might kill each other. That wouldn't happen in the same way, I don't think. And so moving to Moab uh, as Israelites was a dangerous move. The family uh, wouldn't receive a warm welcome, but uh, they could well feel on the edge of what was going on. They could feel isolated, but they go anyway because they need food, because they face starvation in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Elimelech is not prepared to hope against hope, and so he moves his family Uh, away from their land, their wider family, and that whole sense of a wider family was incredibly important at that time from a place of familiarity, and they go to Moab. But when they get to Moab, things seem to get worse. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies probably before his time. Naomi is then left with her two sons, and then what they go and do is they go and marry Moabite women. They don't get a good press, Moabite women, in the Old Testament. They're often portrayed quite negatively as those who draw the people away of God away from worshipping the God of Israel to, to worship Moabite gods. But then we find, just in these first few verses, it's just like a whole load of tragedy. Things then even get worse. Marlon and Kilion die before their time. No parent wants to see their children die before they do, but that is what Naomi encounters. And so basically for this woman, Naomi, she, who's known as lovely and pleasant, she uh, encounters blow after blow in her life and is left feeling devastated. She probably had high hopes for her life with Elimelech, you know, living to a ripe old age together, tending the farm, making it work, raising her boys, you know, seeing her her boys marry good Israelite women, playing with her children's children, and so on, a bit like Little House on the Prairie. But sadly, life just doesn't work out like that for Naomi. She loses pretty much everything and finds herself in a foreign country with two foreign daughters-in-law. Naomi, I would say, which is why I think this story resonates with our story in the here and now. Naomi experiences the stuff of life. And having been involved in pastoral ministry for many years now, you know, I've met people who found themselves in that kind of situation. You know, basically, it just seems like, you know, despair and difficulty comes at them like a tsunami. You know, just hit with one thing after another. And it's not unusual, particularly in the church, when some well-meaning individual comes up and says, oh, don't worry, it could be a lot worse. Um, Just count your blessings. (laughs) And all you want to do is just punch their lights out because it's not helpful. You know, but I think what we find in this, though, with Naomi is that she is actually honest about her situation. You know, we need to name things for what they are and have a sense of honesty about our lives. And I think that's what we find, actually, 
with Naomi. She recognises that life is harsh and she's honest about it. And I think in life, sometimes we don't know why bad stuff happens to good people. And all we can do, I think, is with honesty, name it before the face of God, to treasure the questions. Um, You know, despite the mass of knowledge and wisdom we have in the world, there are some answers to life's questions, particularly the question of suffering, that we just don't have. We just don't have, and we find that here. But in the midst of Naomi's despair and all that she faces in these first few verses of Ruth chapter 1, we do find a glimmer of hope. There's this sign of divine providence pushing through. God has been fairly hidden up to this point, uh, but then he gets a mention. Naomi hears that actually the rains have come and the crops have grown and that the famine has come to an end in Bethlehem. And so what she does is that she decides, uh, having nothing to lose, because she really has very little anyway, that she will go back to return home with her daughters-in-law. Now, of course, for Naomi to go back after Elimelech has taken her out, there will be a sense of humiliation, returning maybe with her tail between her legs. But she has little choice. But she does give a choice to her daughters. And if you take a look at verse 11, um, she says this to them. She says to them, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Naomi has lost hope for herself and says even to her daughters-in-law, why would you bother coming with me? Basically, she she finds herself in a bitter place. Now, I'm sure many of us have met bitter people in life, but they probably always weren't like that. Something has happened. Their character has changed and they have become bitter. Naomi was hopeful. She was pleasant and lovely. That's what her name means. But later on, if you look down at verse 20, when she gets back to Bethlehem, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Naomi has changed because of what she has faced, and she blames God for her misfortune and her suffering. She's not stoical about it. She doesn't put on a brave face, but as far as she's concerned, God has let her life fall apart, and she's not afraid to say so. And I think what we do find, and I say this time and time again in the scriptures, particularly within the Psalms, we are given permission to be honest about our lot before the face of God. It's part of our prayer life. It's not all about smiles. It's actually about honesty for what we face, that we, that we come before him when life is good, but we also come before him when life is hard and bitter. And I think some of us, we just need, in the midst of tragedy that we might face, we need to complain before the face of God, and I think that he's big enough to take it. But ultimately, within that, he is good, and his love endures forever. And so what we find, actually, is despite all this misfortune and emptiness and bitterness, God is at work uh, within Naomi's life. There's that sense uh, where divine providence is pushing through like spring bulbs after 
a harsh winter. And we find this divine providence being lived out in the life of Ruth. When we find uh, here, we find the Orpah, uh, Oprah to her friends. She goes back to her family with Naomi's blessing, but Ruth is quite clear about where she is going. And despite what she has seen about Naomi's God, she turns to her in verse 16 and 17, and she says this, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Ruth commits herself to stand alongside Naomi in the midst of all that she faces. And I think it's as if Ruth is doing Naomi's faith for her at this time, in the midst of this tragedy and suffering. And and I think that when we find ourselves in difficult situations when it seems like the world is against us and that God is more absent than present, then we need others, like Ruth did, to cling to us, to pray our prayers for us, to do our faith for us. I think what's happened, and I I blame the Reformation for this, you can pick me up on it after, we have kind of personalised, individualised faith, so it's about me and my God. But, but it's never like that in Scripture. We follow God in community. We follow God in family. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You think about the Philippian jailer. He was baptised and his whole family with him. Think about Lydia. She and her whole household were baptised as they sought to follow Jesus. It was something they did together. We put the individual above the collective. And I think what can happen sometimes within the life of a church is that when someone hits a really hard time for whatever reason and there's that sense in which they kind of lose faith and they struggle with faith and they find it hard, what can happen is is that we can ostracize them rather than cling on to them. And, And I've been guilty of that myself. And I think that we need to recognize that when faith is hard for others, then we, like Ruth, need to cling, to hold on to others and and allow them to hold on to our coattails of faith. I think that's so important that we do that. And so we come to the end of this first chapter. Most of it is pretty miserable. Uh, We've got three more to go. The story does get better. Uh, And I could end this sermon uh, thinking about all all that this chapter throws up about tragedy, and and faith and commitment and despair and death and all that kind of stuff by saying that the answer is, of course, Jesus. Um, And it is. But I don't think we've got there yet. It's a bit like the preacher doing a kid's talk on a Sunday, and he says to the kids, what's brown furry eats nuts and climbs trees? To which one child says, it sounds like a squirrel, but the answer's probably Jesus. (laughs) You know? But... But, but we, don't, we don't get anywhere near Jesus until the end of this story, and even then it's generations away. But what I do think that we find in this chapter is terrible tragedy, the stuff of life. And, and some of these things, um, some people here, as part of our community, they face that kind of stuff. Maybe you're facing that kind of stuff at the moment in whatever situation you find yourself in. And I I think that what I get from this story is that we're 
given permission when we're in that place, not to put on a brave face and to be stoic about it, but actually to be honest, like Naomi was before the face of God, and to complain and to protest and to weep and to mourn. I think this chapter also highlights to us as well the importance of clinging to others when they too face the stuff of life and to keep faith with them, even though their hope is lost, their faith is dry, and their lives are bitter. And I think that what we also find in the midst of all of this tragedy, the apparent hiddenness of God, is divine providence is actually at play. God is at work. We find we've got the end of the famine in Bethlehem. We find Ruth's beautiful commitment to cling on to Naomi despite all that she faces. Naomi can't see it yet, but it doesn't mean that providence isn't taking place. And it, and it may well be that at this time that God seems more hidden than present for you. But I, I want to say this. Be assured, he is sovereign. He is good. And he is at work in your life. Just like that barley harvest was beginning uh, to come through at the end of this chapter, which is a sign of God's providence, my prayer for each one of us, especially those who find themselves in a place of darkness and despair, who have maybe lost hope, is that you would also see the signs of God at work in your life as well. That divine providence would be part of your story as much as it is a part of Naomi's and Ruth's story as well. Shall we pray? Just a moment of silence as we just bring ourselves before God with where we're at, whether it's in a good or difficult place. Just come as you are. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign and that you are good. And we thank you that even though we don't always see you at work and that at times you might seem more hidden than present, you are in fact at work in our lives. We thank you that divine providence can be part of our story as it is part of this Old Testament story. And we pray for those in our community who are in the midst of tragedy and loss and pain. We pray that they would be honest before you. We pray that they would experience signs of you at work. And we pray that you would show us where we need to cling to others to help them keep faith so that their hope in Christ would be restored. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.